0: You're listening to CIVIC from the San Francisco Public Press. In this edition, we look at reparations in San Francisco. What they are, who could qualify, and why Black San Franciscans are searching for restitution.
1: For 20 or 30 years, the Fillmore almost looked like a ghost town. It looked like a war zone because there were a number of empty lots that remained that way.
2: People wanted to fight for their property. But they soon learn you can't fight city hall. You can't fight the government. Not like that.
3: As I've said in many moments of our deliberations, centuries of harm should be met with centuries of repair.
0: I'm Madison Alvarado, and this is CIVIC. As a data reporter, I always make it my business to learn about the neighborhoods I move into. Not just what public transit or grocery stores are nearby, but their history, past and current demographics, and the communities that have been there far longer than I have. So when I moved into my new place near the Panhandle, one of the first things I learned about was the deep history of racial discrimination that shaped the area I live in. And as a white woman living in this neighborhood, I now have to sit with the uncomfortable reality that I am a gentrifier." When I dove headfirst into this history, I quickly realized neighborhood boundaries and their names can be a complicated topic. While Google Maps refers to my neighborhood as Nopa, or north of the Panhandle, and others refer
4: to the area more broadly as the Western Edition, many people know this part of the city by another name, the Fillmore.
0: Back in the 1930s, large swaths of the Fillmore were marked as hazardous for mortgage lending due to the high concentration of Black people living there. A few decades later, thousands living within walking distance of my current home were forcibly displaced by Urban Renewal, a government plan that sanctioned demolition of homes and businesses en masse with empty promises of return. San Francisco is considering a plan to remedy decades of anti-Blackness perpetuated by city policies in the form of reparations. Though these policies span everything from mass incarceration and the war on drugs to disparities in health and education, I wanted to take a deep look at the history of forced displacement and housing discrimination that led in part to the push for reparations today. In December 2020, the Board of Supervisors created the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. Its mandate was to create policies for repairing city-sanctioned harms to local Black communities. When the committee's draft plan was made public, major headlines across the country lasered in on one thing.
5: A San Francisco committee formed in 2020 is now proposing a $5 million reparations payment to each Black resident in the city. Can the city even afford that kind of money?
6: The proposal would give every eligible black resident $5 million. $5 million each. $5 million
3: each. $5 million. $5
0: million. $5 million. $5 million million. million each. But during a board of supervisors meeting in March to discuss the plan, the chair of the committee, Eric McDonald, said reparations are about much more than $5 million.
3: This report contains 111 recommendations, not one. Just, just to be clear.
0: In that same meeting, Economic Rights Director of the city's Human Rights Commission, Brittany Chiquotta, defined reparations.
7: The report emphasizes that when a government is responsible for wrongful actions or negligence that causes injustice to a specific group of people, it has a duty to remedy those actions. The United Nations Conditions of Reparations really outlines that it, it's moving forward measures to redress violations of human rights by providing a range of material and symbolic benefits to victims or their families, as well as affected communities. We're talking about compensation, providing for damages, economic damages, rehabilitation, medical or psychological care and legal services, restitutions, which means restoring the victim to their original situation before the violation occurred, and satisfaction, public apologies, commemorations, truth-seeking, and guarantees of non-repetition.
0: McDonnell also outlined what the committee is seeking from the city in four
3: steps. Broadly stated, one, to issue a formal apology for past harms. Two, tailor redress to eligible individuals directly harmed. Three, commit to making substantial ongoing, let's underline that, substantial and ongoing investments in black communities, establish an independent office of repairs to execute the reparations plan, and then finally create and fund a committee of community stakeholders to provide oversight and ensure continuity in the implementation of the relevant policies. As I've said in many moments of our deliberations, centuries of harm should be met with centuries of repair.
0: Still, the proposal has left some wondering. Why reparations now? And why in San Francisco?
8: Reparations, quite frankly, is the second oldest idea in Black politics, the first one being abolition.
0: James Lance Taylor is a professor of political science at the University of San Francisco and sits on the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee.
8: From about 18 65 until 1909, the main thrust of black politics and organizing is around reparations. And King came back around to it at the very last effort in Memphis, Tennessee, when he talked about the Memphis sanitation workers, but his arguments were around the economic impacts and and it was a war, it was called the Poor People's March. And that was King's clearest direct attack on poverty, but he talked about poverty more than anyone. And reparations now is more about what has happened to people since, say, World War II, ghettoization, urbanization that was set up for failure, the war on drugs. Even King at I Have a Dream says, we came to cash a check and it was marked insufficient funds. King advocated reparations, but he never used the term. And so it really was an ideological shift that brought us to this point.
9: America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great faults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice.
0: Advocates like Tanisha Hollins are trying to cash that check today. Hollins is the vice chair of the Reparations Advisory Committee. When we talked about why reparations in California... She discussed the law that compelled people in free states to capture those who had fled and send them back to enslavement out of state.
7: California may have never had slavery, as as they put it, but the badges of slavery were here, right? And they were codified into our law. I mean, the research has shown in the state commission report about the first leaders of this state being complicit in adopting the Fugitive Slave Act here. And there were people who were enslaved here, black people who were enslaved in California. Even if California did not enact slavery, black people still could not vote here. Black people still did not have legal rights to go into contract. Black people had no legal protections, right? And so when we say the badges of slavery, that's what we mean. We mean that while California may have said, no, we did not do this, they certainly supported all of the racist policies that excluded Black people specifically. And that that harm has had real consequences, and you can see it, you know, in the racial wealth gap, in the achievement gap, and a lot of the challenges that the Black community faces now all throughout California.
4: In fact, according to American Community Survey estimates from 2019, Black San Franciscans have a median annual household income of $34,000, compared with a citywide median of 112,000. One recommendation to bridge this gap is supplementing income for those who qualify. Taylor also mentioned a 2004 report from United for a Fair Economy. This group measures progress on Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, based on housing ownership, unemployment rates, incarceration rates, and more.
8: And they reported that it would take Black America 1666 years to catch up to white America, and that wealth from home ownership, specifically. Not general wealth from assets and retirement, but wealth from home ownership. A millennia and a half. Why would Black America want to be in a country where they're a thousand years behind everybody else economically? And that's why reparations is is urgent.
0: But to repair harms, you first need to acknowledge them. And that means having hard conversations, not just about slavery, but everything that came after it.
5: Where people often think about slavery as the qualifying act that brings on the need of reparations.
4: Rachel Brahinsky is a professor of urban studies at the University of San Francisco, who focuses on the intersection of city geography and race. We
5: know we have this very long history of deep housing discrimination and instability, which is exacerbated by gentrification and its displacements which again is the result of city policies. So gentrification doesn't just happen. Displacement doesn't just happen. It happens because policies are in place that either promote it or allow it, You know, depending on the policy in the certain moment. But you can look at the last 30 years of change in the city and you can identify many city policies that produce the conditions for dramatic displacement, far beyond urban renewal, far beyond conversations around slavery and the most impacted people have been. Communities of color and Black communities in particular have borne the brunt of it. District 10 Supervisor
0: Shimon Walton, who introduced legislation to create the Reparations Advisory Committee, outlined some of the many harms committed against Black people in San Francisco.
10: I am fighting to achieve reparations for Black people in San Francisco. Folks who were suffering from redlining, folks who had to deal with the dissent decree and weren't allowed to receive an education here in San Francisco, but most certainly paid taxes for other people to receive, folks who got pushed out during redevelopment and got their homes eminent domain, their businesses eminent domain, folks who have been over-criminalized from marijuana convictions and other things that are now legal and people are profiting from that, unfortunately, don't look like me. So those things are real. San Francisco has most certainly oppressed Black people with policies that were indoctrinated into the law.
0: San Francisco's Black population was about 4,000 people prior to World War II. In the 1940s, tens of thousands of Black Southerners were recruited to move across the country to San Francisco for work in the Hunter's Point shipyard. Many of them took up residence in the Fillmore, one of the few places where Black people were able to live due to racially restrictive covenants in other parts of the city. Such covenants were a common practice, written into property deeds by white property owners and developers, barring Black people and other people of color from owning or renting these properties. The Fillmore had also seen an influx of vacant units as the Japanese Americans who used to live there were forced into concentration camps during the war. Rachel Brahinsky told me about several other factors that led to segregation in the city.
5: Essentially, the Fillmore, it was already a very diverse neighborhood that had been true for many decades. And it had already become a place where new Black migrants to the city were moving when the redlining maps were essentially drawn.
0: Starting in the 1930s, the federal government began denying Black borrowers access to credit based on a discriminatory housing practice known as redlining. Decisions regarding loans or mortgage insurance often relied upon residential security maps that were drawn by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, a government-sponsored entity created during the New Deal to help homeowners facing foreclosures. These maps marked different neighborhoods by color to designate their lending risk. Areas with high concentrations of people of color were marked in red for high risk, fundamentally contributing to racial disparities in access to homeownership, residential segregation, and disinvestment from communities of color.
5: Each redlining map has this kind of story behind each sector of the city that has an you know an analysis of why that part of the city gets coded red, green, blue or yellow and in the case of the Fillmore it was coded red because of the multiraciality of the neighborhood because there were black people moving in, that was part of the reason. In the Bayview Bayview was redlined because it was industrial, basically industrial land use. It was not yet a Black neighborhood. However, that dynamic of redlining in Bayview actually produced the conditions under which it became a Black neighborhood in San Francisco. So these are two very different paths and different ways that redlining worked, but ultimately it played a role in underdeveloping and producing underinvestment in both of those communities.
0: Brahinsky also told me about realtor steering. A practice wherein realtors would informally tell potential Black homeowners that they would just be more comfortable in certain neighborhoods preserving
5: segregation. So all of the sort of ways in which segregation were produced in the middle of the century across the U.S., those were happening in supposedly progressive San Francisco.
0: One of the biggest harms to Black communities in San Francisco started out as a promise to make things better.
5: The urban renewal program, federal program that's administered at the local level played out in similar ways across the country. The aim was to revive blighted areas. The city and county had to make its case in court, essentially, that an area was blighted in order to be eligible for potentially for demolition or kind of major reconstruction. James Baldwin came to San Francisco to visit. And I believe it's on that visit where he says, you know, Urban renewal is actually black removal, it's Negro removal. And so the way that blight was defined was, it was about peeling paint, it was about infrastructural problems, but it was also about people and it was also about race very much. And what that meant, the redevelopment agency came in at first very intensely with demolition and eviction of hundreds of people and then ultimately thousands of people and then ultimately maybe as many as 20,000 people
0: Urban renewal took place in several phases in San Francisco. One of the first areas targeted was the Fillmore. The Fillmore was a booming cultural hub with thriving jazz clubs and businesses known around the world as the Harlem of the West. The music you're hearing is David Hardiman, a musician, jazz historian, and co-founder of the Fillmore Jazz Ambassadors. He described how the music scene grew in the city by the bay.
9: If you go back to the days when they had the big shipyards here and they eventually built railroads coming from the south and across the country with the Chinese and some African Americans... They had big ships and boats going up and down the rivers. That's when music was more or less brought into this area for the African-American people primarily. And over a period of time, the musicians were going back and forth between New Orleans or Chicago or other places coming into here. That was part of the development of the music scene in San Francisco.
6: There was so much activity going on on the East Coast. And to get that same flair, that same feeling, you could come here to San Francisco in the Fillmore and get that same atmosphere of live music and jazz and dance and all that. In addition to that, it was a thriving business community. We had our local dentist office, doctor's office. There was a, a bowling alley. I mean, there was just activities, life happening here in the community.
4: That was Erica Scott the owner of Honey Art Studio in the Fillmore. Though the neighborhood was once bursting with small businesses, almost 900 were closed in the wake of urban renewal, many of them owned by African-Americans. Some were directly displaced, others closed as their customers were forced out of the neighborhood. Part of the reparations plan lists recommendations for revitalizing cultural institutions, specifically naming the Fillmore Heritage Center, the African-American Arts and Culture Complex, 1550 Evans, and the San Francisco African American Arts and Culture District. Nowadays, sites that used to house Black-owned businesses are occupied by large corporations, such as a San Diego-based bank on Post Street that was previously home to Jimbo's Bop City, one of the city's most famous jazz clubs. Scott's Art Gallery currently houses an exhibition of photos from a book called Harlem of the West.
6: About 62 images from the book, Harlem of the West, which again, just depicted what life was for black people in San Francisco and the Fillmore in the forties and the fifties. Most of these photos are of the actual jazz scene. And we had so many famous people who would come on a regular basis. Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Eartha Kidd, like this was really the place. And these photos just show the musicians and then also behind the scenes, the many businesses that black people owned and operated. They owned the clubs, they owned the restaurants. It was just a place where it wasn't a phenomenon. Like now, me being here in this space, in the same community, it's a big deal to own and operate a business. Whereas back in the 40s and 50s, all the businesses were owned and operated by black people. Church was always like a, a huge part of black life. And so we do have a lot of images of just a collection of women and families coming and going from church. It just spoke of the community and being able to interact with neighbors and people who understand your life. And just building that community was so essential and so important. Like now, that doesn't happen and it hasn't happened for like the last 20 or 30 years and it really, really impacts what it is to live in a space where not too many people look like you or the businesses that do exist. You know, you always feel uncomfortable. What are they thinking? What are they thinking about me? And, you know, it's just so that wasn't the case.
9: Well, the Fillmore was happening. When I came here, I didn't know much about it one way or the other, but it was pretty uh, Fluent, You know, there were a lot of clubs and places happening, and it seemed to be alive.
0: But then, everything changed.
9: It had started to decrease. It diminished with time.
6: Urban renewal is what it was called, which drastically changed the community, which meant that what was once said originally to kind of remodel, redevelop, fix up the community, was really code for demolish the community, get people out of here, and get new people in.
0: One of the co-authors of Harlem of the West, Lewis Watts, remembers the contrast of the Fillmore before and after urban renewal.
1: I actually came to San Francisco in 1964 and had a chance to come to Fillmore on a Friday night, and it was jumping. The streets were filled with people from almost from Hayes all the way up to Well, certainly past Geary, because there are a lot of clubs there. And and when I came, I didn't know the history. I just knew it was the black area of San Francisco. And then when I transferred to UC Berkeley in 1968, I was looking for this community that I didn't know. And I couldn't find it because it had literally been erased. It's kind of the sort of case study about sort of how redevelopment can go wrong.
0: The story of Lily Robinson Trezvon is a harrowing portrayal of the destruction and loss brought by this program. Lily's family came to San Francisco, among other Southern newcomers migrating in the wake of World War II. They moved to the city with the hope of achieving the American dream. And they did. Briefly.
2: I came to California in 1947. We lived in housing, military housing. My brother was in the military in World War II at first when we first came here. And shortly after my brother did arrive, after being discharged from the military, my father and my brother decided to look for a home for us. And after searching, they found a beautiful house on O'Farrell Street, right next door to Benjamin Franklin Junior High School. It was a beautiful two-story Victorian house. It was perfect for our family, and that's where it all began. My father was a construction laborer, and my uncle was a master carpenter that came from Galveston here to work on special projects. And when they got the house, it was beautiful, but a lot of stuff was different. It needed work. And... We didn't move into it until the house was totally remodeled, painted, and carpeting and whatever else had to be put in and stuff. And it was like, it was really a nice home. It was what my parents had dreamed of. And a lot of parents dreamed of that came from all over the United States. This is what they finally had living their dream. And just like they got it, they lost it.
0: All in all, as many as 20,000 people were displaced by this government program that targeted Black neighborhoods. Buildings were demolished to make room for new developments, which included widening Geary Boulevard into six lanes. San Francisco seized land for redevelopment under eminent domain. And as Lewis Watts describes it, families fled to wherever they could to find housing.
1: A lot of those people were dispersed to the hate Hunters Point, places like Daly City and certainly Oakland and Richmond and other places and and did not come back. And even now, the African-American population of San Francisco is continuing to fall as people are being displaced.
4: Today, San Francisco's black population is an estimated 5.7 percent, compared with 13.4 percent at its peak in 1970.
2: People wanted to fight for their property, but they soon learned you can't fight city hall. You can't fight the government. Not like that the compensation they received for properties was minimal.
0: For homeowners, often the initial cost of buying the home and nothing more.
2: What they gave us was just nothing. You couldn't buy a house with what they gave us. Because you got to remember, this is years later, things are constantly going up and up and up.
0: After receiving a meager sum for a Victorian they lovingly restored, Lily's family moved to Plumas County near Reno, Nevada. Her mother had a nervous breakdown. Lily started at a new school that only had two other Black children and struggled to process what had happened to her. I took a
2: long time before I could understand what had happened to me as well as what happened to my mother. I started acting up, and my mother just couldn't believe it, just because that was not me. It was so hard for me to walk into that school every day and remember that land, we owned it. You know, and what my mother had gone through and what we all went through because, bam, you just lost everything.
0: Eventually, Lily's family returned to San Francisco, this time as renters, only to be displaced a second time when those apartments were torn down. This was a common experience for those who survived the first round of demolitions. Lewis Watts recounted the wasteland left behind
1: we have pictures of all these rows of victorians being just demolished and one of the things that came out of that was architectural preservation because there was sort of no overview or no kind of discussion about the significance of the building so in about the middle of it community activists and other people stopped the process or also made it so what some of the buildings were moved rather than destroyed but the process sort of stopped in the middle and for 20 or 30 years, the Fillmore almost looked like a ghost town. It looked like a war zone because there were a number of empty lots that remained that way.
0: One of the questions that many people have when discussing reparations is measuring the cost, which can be difficult. Though it's impossible to put a value on the trauma her family suffered, there is one price tag Lily can point to that demonstrates what her family lost. The current value of her family's first home. Unlike many Victorians in the Fillmore, which were destroyed, Lily told me her childhood home was actually moved and now sits in the Mission. Did you ever see where it ended up, or do you know if it's still there? It is. What Have it you is. visited it?
2: I didn't. It was too painful. But I know where it is. Well, right now, it runs for about $2.5 million. Oh, so you're still tracking it. Oh, yes. Why not? But people
0: living in the Fillmore weren't the only ones to experience urban renewal. Learning from what transpired further north, Black San Franciscans in Bayview-Hunters Point fought for redevelopment on their own terms, with some success. A group of women activists in the neighborhood emerged as key players from the 1950s through the 70s. They were called the Big Five. Brahinsky noted that their story shaped this city in many ways people don't recognize today.
5: They thought about urban renewal as something that they could potentially use for their own ends as part of this kind of larger ecology of community care that they were a part of, community development.
0: The Big Five helped form the Joint Housing Committee to meet and discuss the future of housing at Hunters Point Hill, which had been falling apart. A KPIX news report from 1968 shows some of the concerns around redevelopment that were emerging at the time, which spurred community leaders like the Big Five to take action.
3: It was only a few weeks ago when Mayor Alioto proudly unveiled a model of what Hunter's Point Bayview will eventually look like after urban renewal takes place. However, today, a group of citizens from this community, concerned citizens, gathered at Hunter's Point because of a report from the San Francisco Housing Authority, which now owns and manages the project, that it would not go along with this and wanted to sell the property to private speculators.
5: The way that they made this happen, the Big Five brought in the redevelopment agency and then it wasn't that it was easy. It took years of work, lots of committee hearings. They got money from HUD and then the money from HUD disappeared as presidential administrations changed. And so they actually went to Washington DC to lobby to get money back, you know, that had been lost after the mayor wasn't able to do it. So Westbrook herself and a group of others went and they wound up succeeding in getting, I believe it was $40 million, which at the time was what was needed to get housing on the Hill developed. Eloise Westbrook, a key
0: member of the Big Five, spoke to a KPIX reporter in 1972 about the group's agenda
8: let Mr. Herman know that we were going to be a part of and all the decisions that was going to be made in this community, we were going to be a part of those decisions and I want to say that we have been selecting the architects, selecting the contractors uh, whenever they made bids and things like that we knew everything about all the bids when any employee is hired out here in Hunters Point, we have a part in hiring that employee we also have a part in finding. And uh, 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 which I think is just beautiful because I don't think it's another, another urban renewal that works like the way that Hunters Point worked.
5: Hunters Point Hill is covered in these developments that were the result of their work. And some of them are cooperatively managed. A lot of affordable housing under various state laws that allow it in different ways. So it's a variety of things. And at the time, if you look at the photos, you know, it looks amazing, right? It's like this new new kind of townhouse housing overlooking the bay a beautiful playground with this incredible sundial and the problem was that there wasn't as much capital investment to be had for all of the rest of what needed to happen to make the neighborhood sustainable there wasn't good transportation still and there weren't there wasn't you know a jobs ecology people had a hard time finding work because of employment discrimination in all sorts of fields There was not a lot of city investment in those sorts of things in this neighborhood. And so, yes, housing fell apart. Yes, the community suffered sort of in a broader way. You know, even as recently as the 08 foreclosure crisis, right, San Francisco on the whole didn't do that badly in 2008 in terms of foreclosures. But if you zero in on the maps, Bayview Hunter's Point did do badly. And it was descendants of people who'd been around family members of the big five and beyond who were still living in Bayview who lost their homes in that crisis. So there's these many ways that the community has struggled to be stable across time. So it is a contrast. There's this great victory in the 70s to build this housing on the hill and then the kind of socioeconomic effects of the 1980s and 90s. Reshape the community or or just continue to undermine the successes that took place at that time. West
0: Point
2: fell.
5: Today, Black San Franciscans continue
0: to face hurdles getting adequate resources and support from the city. But walking through her art studio and looking at the past gives Erica Scott hope.
6: Over these last 20 or 30 years, it's been so difficult in San Francisco just living as a Black person or trying to create community. And there's so many reasons, you know, you go from housing, you go to business development, you go to urban renewal, you know, there's just so many factors. So looking at these images, it provides hope because again, it was difficult for them. This is the height of huge racism. And even in San Francisco, you know, it's noted to be diverse and welcoming, But again, as a black person, as coming from a lineage of black life, that's not usually the case, honestly. And so, again, seeing this, it does foster hope that they accomplished so much under such difficult circumstances and ways of life. So we're really proud to have the collection and see the laughter and and you could feel the music. You could kind of feel the energy of what life was like here in the Fillmore during this time.
0: So what are the next steps for reparations before June 30th, when the final report is due to the Board of Supervisors and Mayor London Breed? Here's Tanish Hollins.
7: Our committee will continue to meet monthly with the public and then the subcommittees, the four subcommittee areas will continue to meet to refine the recommendations and the eligibility criteria and then put forth some suggestions on the process the city can use or the structure the city may use to address the harm.
0: I asked her how the reparations committee considered eligibility.
7: It's complicated, right, for many reasons. But there are a couple of things that we know are going to be fundamental to eligibility. So one is that an individual be identified as Black African-American on public record for a certain amount of time. I think for now, the recommendation is for 10 years we have to do the same thing with residency of San Francisco, proving that over a certain period of time. And then we are also looking at the certain types of harm that have occurred as another level of eligibility. Things like individuals who were directly impacted by the war on drugs, individuals who were displaced through the child welfare system, individuals who were displaced through urban renewal.
4: It's unclear how many people will qualify given the variety of criteria that the plan describes. Hollins outlined what the next few months will look like.
7: In that time, we'll continue to have community listening sessions. We'll continue to work with economists, legal experts, historians, other folks to have conversations to continue substantiating and refining the harms that we're naming. July through December, the committee will continue to meet and continue to explore the conversation about how the city can implement the recommendations that have been put forth.
0: In June, Mayor Breed will propose a budget for next year. One piece of legislation from Supervisor Shimon Walton requests $50 million to establish an Office of Reparations to find people eligible for reparations and implement approved policies. Breed indicated in late April that she has no plans at this time to back the proposal. Professor Taylor, who sits on the reparations committee, is disappointed.
8: I haven't talked to any other committee members, but I imagine they're all discouraged right now because we were on a high and we had a lot of attention, a lot of momentum. And then today she put a wet blanket on it by saying definitely no to the permanent $50 million committee.
4: But Supervisor Walton said he is still working to get support from the full board and mayor. We reached out to London Breed to ask her opinion on the reparations plan broadly and how implementation of any policies would work without an office of reparations. Her office told us that, quote, the policies presented in the plan will be considered once they are final, end quote, and redirected to other programs to address racial inequity, such as the Dreamkeeper Initiative and Guaranteed Income Programs. Currently, the Dreamkeeper Initiative provides down payment loans for first-time Black homebuyers in San Francisco. The reparations plan suggests turning these loans into forgivable grants for those who qualify. Though supervisors unanimously expressed early support for the draft plan, it's unclear what specific policies each supervisor will or won't back. Taylor also said he received threatening letters regarding the plan at his home and that every member received similar notes at City Hall. While the San Francisco branch of the NAACP initially rejected $5 million payouts for individuals, it later clarified that it supports cash payments in addition to investments in education, economic empowerment, health, housing, and other proposals included in the plan. Reverend Amos Brown, speaking as the president of the SF-NAACP, said you could never put a dollar value on the suffering of his ancestors. But when it comes to payments... He wants to focus on what is practical. When asked about meaningful criticism the committee had received, Taylor said, quote, the black political community does not operate in one accord on any matter, end quote. But that support for the plan had been overwhelmingly positive because the committee created space for people to participate in and shape the plan. However, support for reparations is skewed heavily by race. A 2021 Pew Research Center study shows that 77% of Black Americans support reparations, compared with only 18% of white Americans. In the meantime, the California State Reparations Task Force has approved reparations policies to send to the state legislature for consideration. Similar to Breed, Governor Gavin Newsom declined to share his stance on cash payments until the final report is complete. When I spoke to her in April, Holland said the time for getting reparations into the budget is now.
7: The time really is now, right? Like June is a deadline for a lot of things that we know in terms of like budget priorities. But those priorities are being set right now. There's conversations that are happening right now to determine what those priorities should be and how much can go toward them. And we're aware of that, which is why we've been actively having conversations as a committee looking at the recommendations that are what's been called low-hanging fruit, right? That the city could potentially move forward on in this budget cycle. We, again, it was encouraging to hear a commitment from at least the budget chair that they want to see things happen this year, that we'll need to figure it out this year. So these conversations are happening in real time.
0: Many members of the committee and the board have not yet named specific policies they'd like to see passed and are instead lifting up the whole plan. In our conversation, Hollins did discuss some changes she believes can be made quickly in the current moment.
7: The majority of our city departments, especially those that serve the public, have an equity plan. And in that equity plan, it speaks specifically to the disparities of the black community in San Francisco. So I think when I think low hanging fruit, I think there's an immediate opportunity because your department already has a plan or is already named where they need to be accountable or do a better job to achieve equity specifically for black San Franciscans. I think that's a great place to start. Since you have an equity plan, you can then reallocate or refigure your budget so that this becomes a priority for what you need to do. We have verbal commitment from the Board of Supervisors. You know, we've had a conversation with the mayor. While everyone's level of understanding of reparations and specifically how, if we're talking cash payment, how the city will be able to afford the cash payment, I think there is agreement across the board that reparations are due and that the city needs to commit to a process of making sure that government repairs that harm.
4: Once it receives the final plan, the Board of Supervisors will consider over 100 recommendations. Supervisor Walton is ready to have those discussions.
10: But at the end of the day, reparations is something that's owed to the Black community, has been owed to the Black community for decades. And to right the whole system of wrongs, we need an actual resource pool and actual tangible strategies in place to change those negative outcomes that existed for decades. And so reparations is... Something that is not only owed to Black San Franciscans, but Black people across this country as a whole. And we need to make sure that people are clear that those are are separate.
0: I asked Lily if she had looked at the reparations plan or followed any of the news coverage around it.
2: I don't. Yeah. because just like it's put in paper, they are really put in another piece of paper in a whole different situation. So I didn't want to get attached to that because I wasn't sure how long it was going to last. And I'm pretty sure other people felt the same way.
4: Lily now has a copy of the draft and said she wants to really read it through before forming
2: an opinion on it.
0: Is there a way for the city to repair the harm and try to give back to the community in a meaningful way?
2: Anything is possible if you try and you care. That's my quote to that.
0: For his part, Professor Taylor is hopeful.
8: But like Martin Luther King, when he said, we shall overcome, people, you know, marginalize that statement as some old, rusty, dusty statement. But King was actually evaluating the entire history of Black America. Every time he said that, we will overcome. Why? Because we always have. That's the other part he left out. We beat Jim Crow. We beat convict leasing. We beat sharecropping. We beat peonage, we beat naked, you know, raw slavery. We beat you know, being transported from the West Indies to Alabama and Virginia and places like that. Martin Luther King, when he said we shall overcome, that was a loaded statement. He was saying, the whole history of my people are with me. That's why I know we're overcoming. And that's my confidence, that the majority has always said no to black folk when it came to abolition or killing Jim Crow or the war on drugs and look at all of it is in the past. But I think what we're trying in San Francisco is not just about whether we're successful in getting reparations. We've mobilized hundreds of people in the city. We have mobilized cities around America. We're inspiring people all over the planet. You think we're gonna fail if we don't get the money? We're already successful. It's already happening. And kids who are now 17, 22, They're hearing their parents talk about reparations in 2023. What do you think they're going to be doing in 2043? and 2053? We're planting the seed for the next generation. So even if we don't win this battle, we'll ultimately, if America can ever be right, we'll win the war. Reparations would be a hallelujah moment in America for not just Black folk, but for everybody.
4: For more information about the reparations plan, including a link to the full text of the draft, Check out the companion piece to this episode at sfpublicpress.org. I'm Madison Alvarado, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic comes to you from KSFP-LP,
0: 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Special thanks to David Hardiman for providing additional music for this episode. Our team includes producer Liana Wilcox contributor Sylvie Sturm, and contributor Mel Baker, who is also the program director at KSFP. Cynthia Chavez is our vocal coach. Carolyn Copeland consulted on this episode. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP new episodes on Thursdays. Sign up for our newsletter by going to sfpublicpress.org newsletter. Thanks for listening.